the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic, is outlasted and outplayed everyone else within the first revolutionary generation. His men now control all the critical institutions of the state. He outnegotiated the United States and Western Europe in nuclear talks. Despite severe sanctions, he has pushed the atomic program ever closer to a bomb. He defeated the United States in Iraq. And as has become ever more obvious, as the Iranian people repeatedly rise up in nationwide protests against the theocracy, he has also pushed Iranian society to the breaking point. I'm Ruel Markarek, senior fellow at FDD, standing in for Cliff May this week. My good friend and frequent collaborator on all things Persian, Ray Take, joins me on foreign policy to discuss the most accomplished and perhaps most consequential dictator in the Middle East since World War II, Ali Khamenei. Ray, I mean, if you were to gather together a group of historians on the modern Middle East and you were to ask them who's the most consequential ruler since World War II, I think you would get a list that would include Gamal Abdel Nasser, Khomeini, Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, Hafez al-Assad, Ibn Saud. You might not get Khamenei. I mean, he hasn't received the scholarly attention that he deserves. Well, uh, for one thing, he's still in power. So it, it's very difficult for historians to assess a historical figure who's still there in terms of his proximity or, or his place in the gallery of greats. I would say that Ali Khamenei is the most consequential revolutionary in the modern Middle East, a revolutionary who became a ruler. And this is really tough because Khomeini actually displaced a monarchy of some uh, 2,500 years. Uh, but Khomeini has managed to do one thing better than I think even Khomeini would have, namely to preserve the revolution. It is one thing to wage the revolution. It's another thing to preserve it because there are a lot of things come your way. Yeah, uh, do, you, uh, do, you, do you think, for example, he gets more credit than uh, Hashemir Rafsanjani, the supreme leader's right-hand man, Mr. Fixit? Well, I think Khomeini did not exhibit any form of pragmatism uh, towards toward the Iranian society. Khomeini was not intent on alluring the West. Uh, he his anti-Western proclivities, his revolutionary values, and I think his mission has been to preserve those revolutionary values by tinkering with the political system, tinkering with the economic system, tinkering with the international system, tinkering with the global order. Uh, in that sense, I, I do think he was probably more consequential than Khomeini, although Khomeini has to be ranked as one of the great figures of the modern Middle East. By the way, this does not mean that he was good for Iran. <laughs> Right, right. Khomeini's tenure has been simply destructive for the country in terms of its civil society, in terms of its political maturity, in terms of its ecology. Uh, in all respects, he's been a disastrous ruler, but revolutionaries usually are. I mean, I'm always fascinated by the fact that Khomeini is vastly more westernized than Khomeini was. I mean, the man uh, grew up loving and reading European literature of the radical bent, but he certainly could appreciate what the West could produce literarily. And I've often thought that has been one of his strongest assets is that, you know, he isn't just a cleric. He actually was a fairly bad cleric. It's the other aspects to him that have made him such an accomplished ruler of the Islamic Republic. By the way, all despotic revolutionaries have been good readers. Mao was a good reader. Stalin had an extraordinary, extensive biography, extensive library, and he would comment on the side note of authors, particularly authors he had executed. Uh, so he was a very tough book review editor. Uh, so so uh, there is a, there's a sort of an intellectual expanse to all these extraordinary revolutionaries and 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 cruelty that comes with Mao, Stalin, and to, to an extent Khomeini. Uh, in that sense, he 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 is in, he is very literate in terms of Western ways, but he he is also, to say the least, a historical revisionist. Uh, when he talks, well, I mean, ex that. explain that. Explain that further. The way you see that. Well, I mean, he has uh, he well certainly he can't stop talking about the Second World War. Uh, and, and all the sort of conspiracies that are associated to it. Uh, but he has a kind of a global perspective that comes from historical reading 
whereby he sees the universe not an east-west divide, which is strange for a child of the Cold War, someone who came to maturity in the Cold War, but he's a north-south person. Namely, he doesn't just see Iran as an Islamic revolutionary state, but as a vanguard third borders country battling industrial west and his, and his industrial economic exploitation of the south and his cultural pollution of the south. Well, I mean, but that would put him, you know, in the same league as many of the first generation leftist revolutionaries, where certainly if you listen to them, he read what they wrote. The Islamic components seem to be downplayed or at least less than the leftist Marxist component. Right. If you take the turban off him and put a banjo or a guitar in front of him, he'll fit into Berkeley 68 uh, as a sort of folk singer who talks about anti-Americanism as a, as a force and America as a force of cultural and political exploitation of the South. So in that sense, he does he brings in two particular universes together. Number one, the Islamist universe, namely that the West is a sort of cultural subversion and cultural penetration. And he brings the new left perspective, namely that the West is also an agent of economic exploitation and and and, and colonial hegemony. So it, it's an easy, it, it, these two universes usually don't amalgamate so easily, but he sort of brings them together in almost seamless way, which is quite extraordinary. I mean, do you think that his profound uh, anti-Semitism is inextricably connected to his anti-Americanism or he himself? Do you think he can separate those two? Well, I think anti-Semitism permeates the Iranian clerical class. Uh, I, Khomeini was profoundly anti-Semitic. Uh, in his uh, manifesto about the Islamic government, the third paragraph in the introduction talks about the perfidious Jews and how damage they have done. So he didn't get, he didn't wait to get to chapter one to talk about the Jews. He picked that up right at the preface. Right. right. Third paragraph. So anti-Semitism actually permeates the Islamic clerical state and sort of clerical community that they came from. So I think Khamenei is anti-Semitic. And I think he's he has all the crudities of anti-Semite, namely they control the American banks. So, you know, that's sort of a hidden hand scenario. Uh, in that particular sense, and he has, I think, alluded to it, that, uh, you know, the Jewish influences that dominate the American political class and how they would be displaced if they cross the, 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 the Jewish interests or however he defines it. So I'm not sure. I don't know what, what you think. I, I, I'm not sure if the two can be separated in his imagination. I mean, do you think when you, you look at him that he is aware of the level of internal disgust with the theocracy? Or do you think he deludes himself on that issue that he thinks that, no, it's just this segment and that segment that have been influenced by the West? Do you think he knows that actually even amongst the Mustazafan, the oppressed poor, there is now a significant number of people who really would like to down the theocracy? Well, this is interesting. I, I get your perspective on this, too. The, his level of self-awareness is something that is difficult to gauge. We know in retrospect that Shah was not self-aware. He genuinely thought the monarchy was popular and that the Iranian people held that institution in esteem. And as his occupant, he derived derivative legitimacy. And by the end, he may have actually been a little nuts. And by the end, he might have been a little nuts. Uh, you know, one of the things that struck me with Ibrahim Raisi's speech at the UN is, on the one hand, it was a speech delivered seemingly without paradox. If you read that speech, he actually yeah. condemns violence against women. <laughs> he condemns uh, countries that support Terrorism. Um, I, I mean, one of the things that was said by Eastern European dissidents is that the Soviet Union at some point developed its own lexicon and its own self, its own narrative, uh, where they genuinely believed that they were not promoting forces of uh, terrorism and so on, the Iranians, but that, you know, they're promoting forces of self-liberation, that the Islamic Republic is genuinely popular. I don't know. But, if, if, but, I mean, if you take if you take it from uh, an Islamist, uh, militant Islamic perspective, I mean, the West engages in violence against women every day. Well, that's what Raisi is saying. Right. I mean, so there, there, there may not be a, a, any level of deception there. It's just he's redefining uh, the, the debate. I mean, I think that's one of the things that Khamenei has done particularly well 
in that uh, he is he is essentially told what that he has he hasn't accepted Western standards and he flips and he says, no, these are not our standards. I don't I don't accept them. These are our standards. And by our standards, you're the center. We're not. Right. And and unlike the Soviet leaders, the Iranian leadership today doesn't care about the center of the West. They don't care if they're condemned in, from an Aspen strategy group. <laughs> they, they don't they just don't care about the opinion of the West. That's what's different between the Iranian regime and the Soviet regime, which means the Iranian regime really, really believes in this ideology. And also, if you look at Khamenei's speeches or others, Janati, Kehan editorials, they believe they derive their divine legitimacy from God. And if their constituency is discontent, then it is a job of this, the constituency to change its perspective, coercively or otherwise. Um, do you think? Do you think Khamenei actually? Do you think he understands the United States in any meaningful sense? No, I think he has. A, I get your perspective on that. I think he has a very caricatured view of America. Yeah, I think he has, which is kind of interesting because he has had such a successful policy toward the United States. No, uh, no. for someone who, in my opinion, doesn't understand the United States well. Uh, he say he had an extraordinarily successful policy in managing U.S.-Iran relations. Uh, so maybe you don't have to understand the United States. Now, I understand his reading includes a lot of leftist magazines, Nation magazine, The Progressive, and so on, which kind of reaffirms his view. He talks about the United States as poverty, class-driven, race-driven, oppressive. He has a very caricature view of America, a country that I don't think he knows well. But he has mastered power relations with the United States quite well, but perhaps then certainly better than his his two predecessors, his monarchical predecessor. But now, I don't know if you do you think he knows America? I No, I mean, I think he has a very hard time uh, assessing it. But then again, I'm hard pressed. To but why find... is he so successful in managing U.S.-Iran well, relations? I, that, because I think if he has just simply learned to push. And he knows that if he pushes, the the uh, the United States usually gives ground, uh, and so he he's willing to challenge the states. He's willing to assume it's not om, omnipotent, and so uh, I mean, as as real revolutionaries are, uh, you know, he's not timid. Uh, now, I think he, I I don't think he's gotten enough credit for how bold he has. Has been, and I think that was one of the bonds between him and Qasem Soleimani, the former leader of the Quds Force that uh, Donald Trump, uh, uh, you know, sent the drone killed. That uh, is that I think he really appreciated Qasem Soleimani's boldness. Uh, that he wasn't engaged in quote moderate behavior, uh, and I also think he likes. Uh, that uh, Soleimani's sort of Trotskyite view of radical Shiism also appealed to him. That is, uh, Khamenei really does believe in expanding uh, the influence, the domain, the realm of Iran's uh, uh, militant Islam. And he certainly liked Soleimani's taunting of America. Definitely. Definitely, I think it. Uh, I, because how many does that all the time? No, well, no, I think that comes that comes through crystal clear in his writing and his speeches. Is how much he enjoys mocking the United States. Well, this is at the height of nuclear negotiations in 2015. How many gives a speech denying the Holocaust? That was that was just for theatrics because he liked doing it because he liked John Kerry being asked about it and dismissing it as just rhetoric. I mean, he like. I think the other aspect about Khamenei we don't appreciate because he's so austere and stern in his public presentation is his kind of a ironic sense of humor. Yes. <laughs> is anytime there is a heightened tension between United States and Iran, a stalemate in negotiations, or a possibility of the United States making significant concessions for a deal, he immediately gives a profoundly anti-American, anti-Semitic speech. Sort of a sort of in your face. That, no, that's, I, mean, I think that's what that was always the one of the things the Obama administration, uh, and it wasn't the first. I think the Clinton administration came in that category. We all remember Bill Clinton uh, started issuing apologias for the entire West for all of its uh, supposed sins against Iran, 
in, a, in an effort to jumpstart better relations. Uh, Barack Obama openly talked about you know, an engagement where we could open up a new era with the Islamic Republic, not knowing that by doing that, you actually uh, instilled in a, a Khamenei the opposite reaction. That is, uh, get away from me, you know, show, get lost. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, I, I think that probably there's less appetite for that in the United States today in terms of, you know, the delusion that he's a closet pragmatist has maybe evaporated, I think. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think you can sort of see that if you go back and you look at, at Christian Amanpour's uh, interview with Rouhani, uh, I don't remember the year right now, but it was at uh, when the, uh, after the nu- nuclear negotiations that uh, were picking up steam. Uh, Rouhani essentially denies the Holocaust in the same way that Raisi did. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it needs more historical research. Right. It needs more historical research. <laughs> it's not clear yet. <laughs> and, and Christian Amanpour just let it slide by. Yeah. As did almost everyone else. As is Leslie Stahl. Yes. And uh, <laughs> well, but this time it didn't get it didn't slide by as much. I mean, you did get the State Department to issue one little statement. Some people you, got, you had a little bit more press commentary. And I think that's just because there's no way you can possibly paint. Uh, Raisi as a, quote, technocratic moderate, where you could with Rouhani, you could at least pretend it. If you didn't really know the man, you didn't know his Well, well you could, you there, could, is another, there is another, there is another, it's less obvious today, but it will resurface, I suspect, at some point, the notion that this is a person of the right, and therefore is a person who can deliver. Yes. That that argument has not gained much salience because Raisi isn't delivering. Right. But should the Iranians accept our concessions, and that's what is happening today, then I think the argument will once again be the argument that was made on behalf of Larajani. Then you kind of paint him as a pragmatist, as a conservative pragmatist. Uh, And a conservative pragmatist is a pragmatist who can get an agreement through the system because he's conservative. Uh, He's trusted. The way Rouhani might not have been, the way other interlocutors have have been less reliable from that perspective. That was something that was said or hinted at when Raisi first came to power, that he's a mass murderer, but a mass murderer you can deal with. Uh, and by the way, there are some historical examples you can look at. Beria was a mass murderer, but you know he was pragmatic toward Germany, <laughs> uh, the idea of German unification. So you can you can try that. It hasn't suggested itself as easily, but that argument could resurface. But well, I mean, to look at I mean, we've often talked about um, Khamenei's pragmatism. I mean, he is one of the reasons he's been so successful is he can at least domestically assess the situation right. and figure out a way that you know moves every uh, everything forward I mean, although, you, although although that's been less obvious I, right for the, past, I, I, for the past decade well that was good my question i was going to ask is do you think that Khamenei now can actually in any meaningful way compromise with his own society let's ignore overseas no, i i i don't believe so uh i i don't think he has done so for the past decade the pragmatic thing would have been to allow Laura johnny to run for presidency in 2021 and get elected right that's a pragmatic thing to do he didn't he disqualified him he turned him into a dissident i mean for the people who are listening ali larijani was uh a fairly hardcore bet but 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 pragmatically hardcore uh, uh, and a favorite of the West. Yes, yes. That, that he, should not. That he should had, not he had once. He had once handled the nuclear attack. Right. And to the satisfaction of the Bush administration. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, they were happy with Ali Larajani. They were that what we were trying to do in 2008 is work out a meeting with Ali Larajani. Solana told me he loved him. Yes, uh, that would be the pragmatic thing to do, as opposed to a mass murderer named Raisi with limited intelligence. Right. I mean, uh, you know, that you don't, he is not a suitable custodian of the state the way Laura Johnny would have been. Laura Johnny had guile, uh, he had cleverness. But one of the things I would say, uh, I, I think we talked about this, is Ali Laura Johnny has a legacy project, in my opinion, uh, to reform the economy and make it less vulnerable to international pressure and therefore poorer at home. Uh, impoverishment of Iran is one of his legacies. Uh, number two, to rearrange the political class 
to remove from positions of leadership, even conservatives who might have ability to think things through. Raisi can't. His foreign minister is can't. Uh, and third is the nuclear issue, right? Uh, it is my opinion that Ali Lorajani would like to have a bomb. You mean Khamenei? Khamenei would like to leave the universe in aftermath of that mushroom cloud. No, I, I agree with it completely. So if these are his three legacies and he has to have come to terms with his own mortality, then all those things are going to be expedited. So the political class is going to shrink further and become more repressive, which means generational protest. Uh, so, I mean, why did you think that uh, it was likely in early September that the Iranians were going to accept the American concessions? Well, I, I think the scale of American concessions have been so extraordinary that, and, and at, based upon what I understood, the deal would unfold in phases and Iran would get all the concessions in the first couple of phases, and they would have made some obligations at the last part, and they wouldn't do the last part. So they would get all the benefits and, 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 and ignore all the obligations. Uh, it is still a mystery to me why the Iranians are not accepting our concessions, which are, you know, they get all the money they want. There is really little restrictions on their nuclear program. Uh, and the IAEA is not a material player in this uh, in any way because they can stonewall it. So their their refusal to take an extraordinary positive deal actually this surprised me. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, you were you you weren't surprised by that. No, I mean, I if I if again it's 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 a guessing game, but uh, certainly my assessment of the Supreme Leader is that. One, uh, he enjoys, uh, you know, giving the United States the middle finger. Uh, two, uh, he has said uh, emphatically that he doesn't trust the United States, that uh, they prove themselves to be unreliable first time around. But is he, is he pragmatic enough to sign the surrender terms? Is yeah, I mean, I mean, that's well, because that's what he's being offered. I mean, it's an excellent question. I mean, we don't know exactly what was in all of the American concessions. Um, I mean, it, uh, I have to assume that the American concessions kept in place everything that was in the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan. And more. And more. And more. I mean, we'd have to concede an enormous amount, which I assume we did. Uh, and then it's basically game is over on October 18, 2025, termination day, uh, when the Iranians can start building, you know, advanced centrifuges. Well, they're, uh, they're building it now. I yeah, mean, they're building them now, but I mean, according to that, all of them, IR2s, IR4s, 6s, and 8s, they could start, they could start building them all. Uh, and I, I, I think when Khamenei looks at it, he's not sure that, you know, is he getting all that much? Uh, and well, also, there's no doubt he's getting billions of dollars in return. Right, but as, as we have said, I mean, his first priority is not the economy. Right. There, are, there are other priorities for him. And uh, I'm not sure that when he looks at it, that uh, the the goodies are sufficient. And if, in fact, he is feeling his own mortality, and if we are right, that he really does want to complete the nuclear weapon on an uh, expedited time frame, then uh, I'm not sure that the deal makes any sense. I think the deal made sense before because we made so many concessions, and it more or less fit the time frame that was given to him by Ali Salehi and others, the uh, head of the nuclear uh, organization, right. uh, to develop uh, advanced centrifuges. Well, you know, more or less, they've 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 done that. In fact, they're a little ahead of schedule. Yeah. So uh, right. if you follow that same reasoning, right. then I'm not sure. That simply, you know, dangling carrots uh, is sufficient for him to take them. So, in your estimation, there is not going to be a revived agreement. I mean, I think the odds of it are poor. I mean, I, it's still it's possible. I mean, as you've said, I, I could imagine scenarios where you know we concede absolutely everything. Though I think we've probably already done that. That's the thing. I would assume that all the major concessions, the important concessions, the ones the Iranians really want, we've done it, and he still said no. So in those things that they want, the president of the United States can't give them, and that is that uh, come uh, you know come twenty twenty five. There's no guarantee that a new American president might say, screw this, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm revoking 
and re reimposing sanctions. Well, if there was an American pragmatist on this call, which is neither you or I, <laughs> they would say the following. Uh, yes, Ali Khamenei and the Iranian regime feels emboldened by developments in Europe, by the Ukraine war. And they believe that when winter comes and the Europeans are starving for energy, they will pressure along with the Americans to further adjust their terms and come with further concessions. So therefore, what is happening in Iran now, they're waiting for our midterm elections when they seem to understand that the Americans are unlikely to cave before then. And they're waiting for winter so the Europeans can freeze. And then you'll have a revived agreement. That would be the American pragmatic explanation for what is happening. Why is that wrong? Well, I mean, I, 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 one, I think it'll, it, it, it's too America-centric. It, 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 it makes it appear that American midterms really matter to the Supreme Leader. I don't think they matter at all. Uh, so if you take out all this discussion about the United States, which I think is probably inappropriate, and take the discussion back to Iran, again, uh, I, I don't think if, if you, you assume the Supreme Leader is going to make no change accept no change to anything dealing with the JCPOA. Yeah, but the argument here would be United States and Europeans would make further changes in their offer. See, so I we, think, we I go back to the argument. But I don't think that, I think the Americans, I mean, the only thing I can think of that the Biden administration, you know, probably hasn't conceded is, you know, just front loading the uh, relief a bit more. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm not sure that's a sufficient carrot. Uh, it might be. I mean, the Supreme Leader may wake up one day and he'll have discussions with his uh, inner circle and they say, listen, you know, we have to we've made essentially no nuclear concessions that can't be revoked immediately. Enormous amount of money. And come October 18, 2025, everything, all, all the important restrictions are off anyway. And as we all know, the International Atomic Energy Agency can't surveil us anyway. They can't they, they can't monitor us. So we're essentially we're home free and we're going to get a big boatload of cash. So why not do it? Well, that it's big possible. boatload, that big boatload, according, I think, to FDD analysis, is about two hundred seventy billion dollars. No, I mean, it, that's it, that's a big that's not a boat. That's no, USS, no, that's no, USS it, Nimitz. It is, but I, I uh, again, I think it it it, it overplays uh, economics. And I mean, this is something we have discussed often. I think it is particularly an American want to do that because Americans are essentially a commercial people. So they overplay, even though they're the, probably the most ideological people in the West, they overplay the economics and how they analyze people. And so I am skeptical. It could happen still, but I am skeptical the Supreme Leader looks at that way. By the way, I think FDD analysis is that Iran will get $1 trillion in about over, six, oh, over a oh, decade. Oh, 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 well, over. By 2030, right, right. So that's about six, seven. That's that's. Uh, it is, but I, I mean, it, it, you know, it. One doesn't know. I mean, you, you do all these economic calculations, and I, I strongly suspect the supreme leader is not doing them. Uh, so, would he prefer to have more money and le rather than less money? Absolutely. But is it the primary factor? And it also suggests that uh, I think our analysis has in it within this uh, the, this notion that, you know, maybe he really doesn't want the bomb on a certain timeline. And maybe he's willing to push not having the bomb down the road. There are a lot of folks we know who actually think he's he would be satisfied with having a Japanese arrangement. That's a consent. That, by the way, that's not a lot of people. That's a consensus position. Well, you know, no, I, I think that people want to believe that. I mean, I've, I've had senior administration officials, you know, ask me that question. I mean, they want it's obvious they want to believe that because it uh, it takes pressure off of them to, to essentially do anything. But I'm I'm skeptical. That's the way the Supreme Leader sees it. I think he's a man of ideology and principle, uh, and he hasn't been pushing the nuclear program. The nuclear weapons program is his program. Uh, and I suspect he wants to push it through to completion. And I think I take him at his word when he says, uh, I don't trust the United States at all. They're the devil. But he never uh, did. He didn't trust the United States. In no, no. But but that was you're backdating it to when the technology was much less advanced. So when Salahi came to him and said, we need X amount of time to go from IR2s to IR4s to IR6s to IR8s. 
They needed that time. And, and, we, can, a, and we can get that through the agreements. Right. We can get that through yeah, the agreement. Yeah, right. They've right. essentially done that now. You know, they're actually ahead of schedule. Now, they still have all the problems they've, they've had with every single generation of centrifuge. And that is, you know, they mess it up in the beginning. Things don't work, but then they get better. They improve it, et cetera, et cetera. So I think they're more or less on schedule. And, uh, and I think the Supreme Leader has been enjoying enormously uh, playing with both the Americans and the Europeans in these negotiations. So we're basically talking about the fact that the United States, the West and Iran are operating in two very different arenas. The Iranians uh, are operating in an arena of self-sufficiency, domestic reliance and nuclear bomb. The yes. Americans are operating in an arms control arena. Uh, an arms control arena, as I always say, makes two assumptions. It has to. Number one, that the other side is pragmatic. Number two, that the other side can be a responsible stakeholder of nuclear assets. Those have to be the arms control yeah. assumptions. As I said, I think before, those assumptions have always proven wrong. They were wrong toward the Soviet Union. They were wrong toward North Korea. And they are wrong toward Iran. So how do you explain the persistence of arms control? We have written a great deal that the era of arms control is over. And I don't think we have persuaded anybody. No, I, I think that's right. Well, if arms control is over, I mean, it, it introduces a lot of calculations that uh, I think are very uncomfortable for people, particularly given the United States now, what I would say there's a consensus opinion that the United States needs to draw back. Uh, instead of uh, the, that very few people uh, are comfortable with American hegemony any, anymore. Yeah, but if you are interested in drawing back, that is not consistent with conceding to an Iranian bomb. Because almost all the decisions that are made in the United States about foreign policy have a domestic political aspect to it. If not, that's the exclusive aspect to it. It will be difficult politically for an administration, I think, I'm offering that as a proposition, to be in the White House when that that mushroom cloud goes over Shiraz. That is I, a domestic I, political problem. I, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think it's a big one. I, I think uh, I think you will very you'll have a consensus that will develop very quickly uh, where. All right. It's happened. And uh, the issue for the United States I actually think almost everyone in the Biden administration has already accepted an Iranian nuke. I, 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 I don't think there's any, any desire uh, in the administration, for example, to get engage in any type of preventive military action. Uh, there are some corners in the Republican Party that might be comfortable with preventive military action, but I don't believe that's a majority. So I think everybody's deceiving themselves here about their willingness to accept an Iranian nuke. And I'm skeptical uh, that uh, the blowback from that politically uh, is, is all that lasting. Well, I, I, you, the, the president who oversees that mushroom cloud, I mean, he would be dealing with the fact that his five predecessors, has, including himself, has said that this will never happen. Well, no question about it. I mean, that, I, I, that it, has to. No, the, the, the effect the effect on the United States will be substantial, and it'll be another example of uh, American weakness. It will be, you know, uh, proof uh, of you might say of the decline of the United States. But uh, I still think I, I do believe that will quit by Raymond Aron is true, and that is when statements when statesmen say something is unacceptable, it means they've actually accepted it. Uh, and the I think the only alternative, uh, and I think this has been true from the very beginning, the uh, the only alternative to the Iranians developing uh, a nuclear weapon ha has been American military action, possibly Israeli military action, but really American military action is the thing that might uh, might derail it. Uh, and uh, we've walked away from it every time. Uh, so I... I'm, I'm, I, I, I think the, the view is, is that arms control is a pacific way out of this problem. And so that's why no one ever refers to what the nuclear negotiations as extortion. I mean, it's, it's literally a perfect dictionary definition 
of extortion. But I'll be damned. Well, but that's that's always that's been the case. Once you no longer that was the case with North Korea. Uh, yes, of course. It, I mean, it was, it was we, payment for restraint. So we, that we, that we, that's we, been around for a while. Well, right, and and, and it, as you said, it didn't work with North Korea, and it's not going it's not going to work with Iran. But it shows you to the extent that we don't want to take military action. We don't want to try. Uh, Korea was actually much more complicated, but we just don't want to go there. Uh, so we're willing to be extorted. Uh, by a variantly anti-American theocracy. Uh, well, you, I want to go back to one issue that pops up to mind, that, which I find intriguing. Given the fact that Ali Khamenei doesn't really understand the United States, I think, right. how do you account for the fact that he's gotten America so right? Saddam didn't, Gaddafi didn't, uh, Nasser didn't. Well, I mean, explain how you think he's gotten America right. Uh, he has... He has pushed forward with his agenda, with the perception of impunity that has come to pass. Yeah, but I mean, he hasn't done, I mean, he has developed, uh, I think, a, a reasonably clever, uh, they they didn't really have an, a, a practical alternative to developing, uh, you know, these radical Shiite militias that they've used throughout the right. Middle East. Right. So, and they've had an arena where they could, to, could do that because the Americans have essentially withdrawn from the northern Middle East, uh, and we obviously aren't getting involved in Yemen. Uh, so uh, you know that is certainly more clever than taking armored divisions and running over Kuwait. So uh, Saddam Hussein engaged in behavior which was just over the line; it was too far. Uh, the supreme leader has been more restrained in his aggression, uh, more clever in his aggression. Uh, I mean, what's striking to me is, is, again, is the number of times the uh, Iranians have engaged in terrorist actions uh, and uh, Americans and Europeans have essentially rolled their eyes and let them get away with it. So I think that tells you that there really isn't a lot of backbone there to take the alternative which would be some type of direct military confrontation. That's why Donald Trump's decision to uh, kill Qasem Soleimani was uh, so surprising. Uh, uh, and I think it shocked uh, the Iranians to the quick because that isn't the way the Americans have usually handled these, these, these situations. Right. Yeah. As I said, it's, it's intriguing how he has managed the relationship with the United States and the region. I mean, under the Trump administration, he invalidated the Carter Doctrine. Yes. That nobody talks about that. Well, again, because I think it's I think it's one, it's embarrassing. By the way, that's huge. It is huge. But I mean, it's embarrassing to talk about it. But if you're going to affirm the Carter Doctrine, you're going to affirm American hegemony. I mean, you're saying clearly that America is going to maintain uh, maintain a hegemonic position in the Persian Gulf. Uh, you don't have a lot of folks who are now willing to openly uh, say that. Uh, I mean, George Schultz, bless his heart, before he died, said, you know, we should lay down terms for the Iranians on the nuclear program. And if they don't accept them, we hit them. Uh, I mean, there are very few people who are willing to, to be so straightforward uh, and follow through. There's the threat of force, but... Uh, which, is, which is implied. It's implied, but I mean, I think we've gotten to the point with the Islamic Republic, given their actions, that we need to have something a little bit more convincing than the threat of force. Now, granted, the good thing about the United States is because it does have such latent power. If you decide to exercise it, I think you do get to reset the clock. And so... Uh, what would that look like? How would you affect Ali Khamenei's calculus today? Well, I mean, I, I think you, yeah, I think you would have to use. I mean, now you're you're in a pickle. So I, I think well, they've got, I've gotten that. I think they've gotten so close to the bomb. I mean, the only aspect of the bomb which we don't know really is the trigger. We don't know how far they've come with the nuclear trigger. Six months ago, the Israelis were saying that they could get a trigger in 18, 24 months. Now you know. When an intelligence service tells you 18 to 24 months, right, right. it means they don't have an asset inside that can give you a more precise timeline. Right, right. It's, so, it's, 
Yeah, it's like when the INR said in September 1978 that the Shah would not fall within 12 and 24 months. Right. <laughs> Four months later. You're good, exactly. It's, it's, it's a guess. It's an yeah. extrapolation. Right. It may turn out to be a great extrapolation. It may be an inaccurate extrapolation, but it's definitely, it's a guesstimate. Uh, you know, the administration is certainly willing to accept that. Uh, that estimate maybe and elongated because it, it relieves them. I mean, 18 to 24 months in Washington time is dog years. So, I mean, it, it can, it, it, it can go a long time. So uh, I, you know, I, 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 that's the only, that, that is the only thing we really don't know. So the, 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 we could threaten them. We could use for, we would have to, I think, use force. And by think, but even using force now, if it's not directly against the nuclear program, uh, could conceivably even accelerate the nuclear program. Is that possible? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that's the issue. The only issue is where are they with the trigger? So we know that they can go from 60% uranium enrichment to 90% like that. By the way, 60% is weapons grade uranium. Right. right. So they do have weapons grade uranium right. today. Right. Right. They do have delivery systems today. Right. The merger of the two is technologically complicated, but it's not insurmountable. Right. No, I mean, I think, I mean, they could certainly, and obviously to enter the nuclear age, they don't have to miniaturize a nuke and put it on a warhead. All they have to do is bloody test it. Well, the, the American approach to this has always been American centric. What they say, if an arms controller was on this call, he would say, look, the Iranians are not going to go across the nuclear threshold unless until they can assemble an inventory of nuclear weapons. This way, they have a second strike capability. That would be sort of a RAND cooperation study of 1966 about how Iran would cross the nuclear threshold. As you said, Ali Khamenei may actually opt for a dirty bomb. He can have a bomb he can deliver in a truck. He doesn't right. require a delivery system. He doesn't require MERV technology. He doesn't require ICBMs. I mean, it's too often when the Americans talk about how Iran crosses the threshold, they go back to Iran studies of 1950s and 60s. That's not the way Ali Khamenei may go. He might not think he needs two weapons. He might not need three weapons. I, I, Ideally, he might need an inventory, but he may actually cross with a far more limited capacity because he's not subscribing to Iran Corporation studies. No, I agree. I agree with that completely. Totally. I mean, right. well, I mean, if we were to sh shift it to maybe a, a more optimistic discussion, uh, I mean, uh, obviously what the Supreme Leader has a harder time controlling, he handles the Americans rather well. What he has a hard time controlling are, of course, the Iranians themselves. Uh, I mean, um, and certainly the demonstrations, the nationwide demonstrations uh, for the death of uh, Miss Amini have have re-emphasize sort of the fragile well, I, I don't want to leave the nuclear issue without us enumerating our agreement. Number one, I think we both are at the position where we think that the Iranians are more interested in bomb than in the arms control agreement. Yes. And if there's an agreement, it is not to impede the bomb. We agree yeah. on that. Absolutely. We agree that the way Iranians will cross the nuclear threshold may not subscribe to Western understanding of how a country conceives a nuclear arsenal. We agree on that. The third thing that I think we should agree on is that Russia and China don't care if Iran has a nuclear weapon. Yes. Because we haven't entered that conversation. Because for a long time, people will say, well, the Russians and the Chinese are obstreperous in these negotiations. But at the end of the day, they don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon either, because the Chinese don't want a nuclear weapon state in an energy resource region. And the Russians don't want a nuclear weapon on their southern boundary by a revisionist regime. But talk about that because that's important. Because this, the other global stakeholders have resigned themselves to it, accepted it. Maybe they think it's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, I mean, it's, it's difficult analyzing the Chinese on this issue. But I, I think they don't really care. I think the Middle East is sufficiently far away; it doesn't interfere uh, with uh, their supply of. Energy. But it's why they get their oil, though. Yes, but I, I, I I'm skeptical. They see that. I think the upside of an Iranian bomb for them is is significant. Uh, it's not uh, I, they're they're not going to engage 
in any great effort arm twisting. I think that's what we're after here, arm twisting to stop it. Okay, those are uh, three big calls we just made. Yeah, just, just and, the Russians, know. and the Russians, I don't think Putin really cares that much. I well, think, not now, certainly. Yeah, and I think the comment he made years ago to uh, a, a Polish official is probably true when he said, you know, the nuke is Israel's problem, they'll deal with it, not mine. Uh, but that's, and, that, that comment suggests he is concerned about it and he thinks someone else will deal with it. Yes, but I mean, there you can be concerned about it, but it doesn't mean you're 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 going to you're going to, and I think he sees the upside uh, more clearly than the Chinese. He sees the upside how Iran getting the nuke certainly sends a pretty convincing message that the United States has gone belly up. Right, and humiliation of the United States is something he would welcome at this stage for a variety absolutely. of reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on 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 your on, we want to end on the name of protest. Ali Khamenei's domestic experiment will necessarily entail dissent. I mean, I, I'm, I, I, you said he's not good at controlling his population. I'm not sure he may be miscalculating, but he seems to think he can bring about this economic poverty without necessarily imperiling the regime. Uh, he may be wrong about that, and I think you and I have often said that he is wrong about that. But that is not the same as saying he misunderstands the level of protest. Maybe he misunderstands the level of his capacity of containing that protest. Which, by the way, if you're sitting in Tehran today and the and the boss comes in and says this is manageable, you have to concede to him because he has managed other forces, other outbreak eruptions of protest. Well, no, I mean, so far, so far, the security services have held it. Right. And they, so, they, so why is this? So he's not misunderstanding his public in that sense, is he? Well, I well, the question would be, does uh, how explosive does he see his own society? I mean, does he believe that an unexpected spark? I mean, for example, like the 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 death of Miss Amini uh, could set off a chain reaction that would overwhelm the security services. Does he spend much time thinking about that? The Revolutionary Guard does. Certainly do, yes. They do. There's no question about it. They have spent a lot of time thinking about it. And uh, they seem to have adopted an approach, which is a lot of violence fairly quickly, uh, to put out these fires. Now that you know could backfire one of these days, and you could you could have the security services, particularly the Basij, who are closer to the people, crack. But so far, it's held. Right. But I mean, again, we have a position of agreement. It's not that Ali Khamenei misunderstands that what he's doing will have domestic penalties. He believes those penalties are absorbable. Yes. No. I think I think he, he thinks for the gain that is made, the cost paid. Are worth it. Uh, yeah, the, the one I want to. Uh, by the way, if he, if the Islamic Republic survives, then he is right. And yes. every day, every day that it survives, he is right. Yes. Yeah. No. No. I. 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 I and I think that's the way he sees it. Right. The question that I have in my mind is the impact of popular protests with nuclear calculations, because right now a lot of people, U.S. government, are telling themselves, I suspect. That in or given that domestic explosive political situation, the Iranians are likely to be more accommodationist on the nuclear front in order to get relief and so on and so forth. That's an American calculation. It probably permeates official Washington. It probably permeates much of the Republican Party. Yeah. Is it wrong? Tell me why you think it's wrong. Well, because that, yeah. that is the question today. A lot of time. When the Green Revolution broke out in 2009, a lot of people in the U.S. government saw that as an opportunity oh, definitely. For, for nuclear diplomacy. Uh, why? What would you say to that argument today if somebody asks you that? Look, they're going to they, they have this domestic political situation. There are economic grievances. We know economic grievances leads to protests. So after this, whatever the, the stalemate, the blockage is, they're going to come back to the table in a more meaningful and pragmatic manner. What would you say to someone who offers that thesis, which I suspect is pervasive in the city? No, no, I think I think it is pervasive. I, uh, I would say, well, at least two things that are very, very critical. Uh, 
One is that uh, the regime really does believe uh, demonstrations, nationwide protests inside of the Islamic Republic are engineered from abroad primarily. By the way, Ahmad Khatami, the Friday prayer leader, said so today. Right. This Friday prayer. He right. said it today. So the, the, the notion that you're going to engage the devil that is responsible for generating these protests, uh, I think, is uh, is odd. Uh uh, into the track record of the Islamic Republic is whenever they've had domestic protests, they circle the wagons and they buckle. I mean, they t- tighten, they tighten down. And uh, external affairs are not seen uh, as a solution uh, to their immediate problem of internal dissent. Uh, and they want to minimize contact with the outside, not open it up. So I, I think the notion that the uh, internal dissent, and we don't know yet, you know, how big this is going to grow this time, uh, is likely to change any calculations uh, that they have. And if they do change, it will change them for the worse, not the better. Well, I want to I I, I pick up on that, because you say when there's a when there's an internal disturbance, they circle the wagons. Uh, could you could there be a symmetry between the two? As Khamenei becomes uncompromising towards his domestic critics, which he is, he becomes uncompromising toward his external critics. Can this particular protest movement not just prolong the nuclear negotiations stalemate, but accelerate the nuclear program? Sure. Absolutely. I I think uh, it certainly would be a contributing factor if, I mean, he was, uh, well, we put it this way. I mean, we don't know for sure how sick he was. Uh, he is 82 years old. The only thing I can say is the New York Times story that they kept online. The headline was Khamenei has not been in public view when he was in public view. Yes. And the surgery that they suggested, abdominal blockage. If you, if an 83-year-old man, 82-year-old man has that surgery, he's not walking three days later. No, he's not. I mean, we wouldn't be walking three days later. Yeah. That surgery. So, uh, no, I mean, I, obviously, the uh, uh, he he has been on his deathbed many, many times. And you know he he he, he goes forward. So by I the think, way, it, it may not it may be that he had no health problems. The old man decided to take a week and two weeks off for religious observance or something. I mean, I think it is fair to say that given that he is eighty-two, given that he has had cancer, that he probably wants to expedite those things if he can. Those things he wants to get accomplished during his tenure. So uh, I think the bomb is probably one of those things that he would prefer to see, assuming technology is there, get finished before he uh, goes to heaven and is rewarded. But I agree with you completely. I think there is a symmetry between cracking down at home and cracking down abroad. In my mind, it ought to be fairly obvious, but obviously it's not. Well, I think on that note, we'll draw this to a close. And I just want to thank Ray and all those listening out there and joining us on Foreign Policy. I think we've enjoyed it. And I certainly hope you have too. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.